This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast this week is John Rowley of Rowley Farmhouse Sales from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, the invite. Well, you know, we've been friends for a couple of years now. I went down to Santa Fe, I think it was two years ago, and I uh, went and visited you guys and have uh, seen you at various places and various festivals and uh, and whatnot since then. Uh, you visited the office a, you know, a couple months ago when you were up here in town, uh, and then you came up to GABF and had this, this strange occasion where you won three medals, bronze, silver, and gold, and then took home uh, Small Brew Pub of the Year awards, and I, I, was, I couldn't have been more happy for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So we're going to delve into the brewing mind of John Rowley and uh, figure out what it, uh, you know, what is going on in there. And I shouldn't say just John, because you've got some, some folks that brew with you there at the brewery too. Yeah, I've got two guys helping me out. Wes Burbank, he used to be the, uh, the brewer at Crooked Stave. He was a brewer there, and then uh, he came to me. He's been at a couple places before that. So we're going to talk about the Rowley Farmhouse Sales approach uh, to brewing. Uh, but before we do that, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention the Craft Beer and Brewing podcast and you'll receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D chiller unit. Also, stay connected to the heart of craft beer and the revolutionary tastemakers behind every can and bottle. Download the free Tavor app to get highly rated independent craft beer delivered right to your door. Recent featured beers include Within Us from Anchorage, Stargate Nectarine from Black Project, King Sue from Toppling Goliath, Ninja vs. Unicorn from Pipeworks, and one of my personal favorites, Beer to Pay from Side Project. Get $10 in beer money today with code BREWING. Shit, I didn't know that. Get free glycol. I know, right? I mean, I have a G&D chiller. Send me, oh. send me some glycol. You bought it too soon. I you bought, bought it. You, and I guess you got to upgrade now. Uh, maybe maybe I have to. <laughs> I would buy another one. Let me put it that way. Their product is solid. Yeah, yeah. And then now that I know I can get $1,000 worth of free glycol. They have Maybe been do it. fantastic supporters of the podcast yeah, this year. And, uh, great product. And, and, you know, everyone that I've talked to has said the same from Josh Freem to Vinny Chilurzo. You know, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm we're real happy with our chiller. Yeah. So, <laughs> John, give me a little bit about your brewing history. Uh, kind of so, walk me through uh, how you got to where you are right now with uh, Rally Farmhouse Sales. So I started out as a home brewer. Um, let's see. My, I brewed a, my first batch of beer in 1988. So that kind of dates me a little bit. But um, I didn't really stick with it. Um, that was kind of a, a an experiment in college, uh, buddies of mine. But um, we we were drinking like stupid beer in 1988, um, Milwaukee's best, sure, sure, uh, old Milwaukee, whatever the cheap shit was um, on sale, was probably what was going around our dorm room. And uh, one day, this guy Steve, who I used to know really well, I haven't seen him in a long time, but his father was homebrewing. He brought a cherry chocolate stout, and I think he stole three or four bottles of it and brought it over to our dorm and, 
And, um, yeah, it was a magical beer. It was fantastic. And so we stole quite a bit of it <laughs> from him. And yeah, uh, yeah. over time, he was like, you fucking kids, come over. I will teach you how to make it. So we actually did. We went to brew with him. And I, we brewed a few times. And I think uh, they came out okay. Not as good as his. Yeah. Uh, but we were not really that much into it at that point. Right. Um, you know, life goes on. Fast forward. I started brewing more in 2007. Okay. Um, in between that time, I read a little bit here and there about it. And um, I think it was a, uh, a Sam Calgione book ended up on my desk somehow at work. Like a, a stupid little how to homebrew book. It was mostly <laughs> extract stuff. But I was looking at it and I'm like, hmm, you know, I think we should uh, start doing this. A buddy of mine, Kale, he, uh, he had a, a really nice homebrew kit that his wife wouldn't let him use. And so we were hanging out at a local brewery in Santa Fe, having some beers. And he said, Hey, Rowley, man, you're a chemist. Why don't, why don't you brew some beer? I'm like, well, I've, I've brewed a few times. I'd love to. Um, I just don't have the, the kit. And he's like, Oh, I, well, I can solve that problem. And he brought that, all that stuff over the following Saturday. And we, we, we started brewing and the, we, you know, I got the bug bad yeah yeah and so i upgraded all that stuff and started putting my head into it yeah and paying attention to what we're doing and 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 growing the process and really it's about developing a process right i developed my process and then you know got serious about it and just made more and more beer and the the hard part at the end of that is trying to find people to drink it Because I can only drink so much. Right, right. You know, I'm pretty good at that, but I'm not that good at that. Sure. And, um, yeah, so, you know, at, at some point you have to say, okay, let's open a brewery. Because, you know, especially when you get into barrel aging. Because if I'm going to start making all this stuff. You can't have. I need to be able to recoup some of what I'm spending on it. Well, that's and, part. Uh, I mean, that's part of it for sure. But, I mean, the passion part is more fun to me. If you have a garage full of beer and you have maybe eight or ten barrels in your garage, I mean that's probably a problem. <laughs> so let's sure, uh, sure, let's move sure. that to a, a professional scale. Yeah, you, know, you know, but just because you like to do that doesn't mean that there's a viable business that comes no, from it. You know, and so there's not. a that's another leap for you then to say, hey, just because I like making this doesn't mean that there's going to be people that want to buy it. Oh, yeah. and that this business is going to be successful. Uh, how'd you go about creating a plan for, you know, a business that could ultimately be, you know, smart and sustainable? So I can't say that that was all me because that would be incorrect. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm the, I'm the kind of the passion side of it. And then I have a partner, Jeffrey. Yeah. He's the, uh, the level head. Okay. And, um, so I met Jeffrey in probably 2011, I think. Um, so for that, uh, backtrack a little bit. Uh, the ho- our homebrew club in Santa Fe called the Sangre de Cristo Craft Brewers. I was deeply involved with that club for a long time. Yeah, I still do a little bit for them. I I was the president for maybe ten-ish years. Um, but you know, as a as a brewer now, I don't have time to do that sure, in my sure. my normal day job, all that stuff. I can't only do so much. So uh, the club used to brew at Santa Fe Brewing Company, where on Saturdays Saturdays they had a small batch brewing kind of thing where people could bring their homebrew gear, um, use their hot water. Um, they provided PBW, um, star sand, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Super nice. And, uh, it, it created a really nice community. Yeah. 
and people would come together on Saturdays and, and you know, especially on the bigger ones like uh, Learn to Homebrew Day. Right, right. Um, you know, things like that. We'd, we'd have a really large crowd. But on an, an any given Saturday, you'd have two or three guys hanging out brewing beer and kind of bouncing ideas off each other and, and you know, trying to make fun beer for everyone to drink. One of the cool things they would do is they would actually put the beer on tap. Oh. So if you if you brewed a beer you liked and you told them, hey, can you guys put this on tap? Small batch Saturday, they would do it. I don't know how legal that is or was. <laughs> I, the laws might have changed. But, Did uh, all the beer ferment there? I don't know. Uh, it yeah. was all yeah, yeah technically fermented there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think it is legit. Um, but yeah, we we you know we 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 brewed a lot of different beer. Yeah. And a lot of different ideas were exchanged, and a lot of a lot of fun things happened. Um, it, it was uh, it was a really good kind of time for everyone, I think. And um, we, we we learned a lot doing that. So that kind of led into brewing for me. Like I met Jeffrey at that time. Um, we 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 became friends through bottle sharing and 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 just drinking each other's beer. He wasn't a brewer, but. His, uh, his wife at the time was um, visiting places like Perennial. Uh, Side Project wasn't quite open yet, I think. Um, but she, uh, she's, she's a traveler by design. She, yeah. Her job uh, puts her all over the country. So, I mean, she brought us a lot of fun beer that we would never see in New Mexico. Right, right. I think we were really blessed in that sense that we, we got to taste you know, hundreds of beers that we probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. You know, New Mexico at that time was sort of a wasteland with beer. That's why we were brewing to begin with. We're like, okay, you, you're not going to get, you know, dry hopped. Mixed well, I mean, 2011, sours. 2012, 2013, like a lot of the country was that. Yeah, way, I think you know? so. I think so. Um, there were pockets of, of, you know, creative brewing. I mean, there were fantastic breweries all over the country. But some of the creative stuff that you, yeah, you but were people seeking were out, like black IPA and you know, right, right, whatever boring styles they were brewing, uh, that wasn't happening yeah. everywhere. But New Mexico was one of those places, right? And, uh, right. We were we were lucky well, to you try. Know, and a lot of sour stuff. beer in general, brewed in the United States, was not a very common thing, no matter where you were. No, no, definitely not. And that was around the time I got the sour bug. So you launch you launch Rally Farmhouse Sales, and you'd focus on farmhouse beers, on sour beers. Uh, on acid forward beers and and not you know uh, sour beers in multiple different ways yes. um, you know both traditional barrel aged sometimes now spontaneous uh, but also uh, you know acidified beers that are done through you know uh, you know more brew house processes yep. um, you know and you produce bo- all of these types of sour beers and release them in different ways um, but you're doing it in a relatively small market uh, that was maybe not as developed or savvy for this kind of, uh, you know, beer that had to seem like a little bit of a risk. It's definitely a risk. Okay. <laughs> it's a big risk. And the good news is that the people in New Mexico have taken a liking to it. Um, I have to thank Santa Fe Brewing for kind of opening that door a little bit because they did a few beers. Um, they had a brewer, Leif. Um, he, he used to do like the Creek you might remember that they brewed that beer in 2013, 2014 and 2015. I do remember that beer, yeah. They did a Oud Brune also. I think before that they made a few other sour beers that were a little weird like a, they did a sour porter um which wasn't really a big hit. Um but they 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 did 
they did want to do sour beer from maybe 2013 to 2015. They put a lot of effort into it. They put a lot of barrels in their in their warehouse. Um, the brewer left to go somewhere else. And at that time, the project kind of failed. So um, not not because of they just didn't have anyone to do it. Right, right. Um, the current staff or the staff at the time, they weren't. Just didn't have a passion for it. They didn't have a passion for it. They The, the brewmaster changed. He's not into sour beer. Sure. So. So they had gone through the the trouble of trying to market and build up some demand for this kind of style of they beer. They started, I think they definitely started the the trend there in that yeah. in that respect. And then just kind of stepped out of it and uh, left an opportunity. They opening. left the door open for me. Um, I was going to do that anyway, but sure, um, my plan had started around that time as well. Um, it just you have to meet the right people. Right. Um, I knew Jeffrey at the time. We we didn't really talk about it at first. Um, I had some other plans with some other people that weren't as solid, I think. Yeah. And then over time, I, I started talking to Jeffrey. And, and a lot of it was his um, his circumstances as well. You know, it became a more common thread probably 2015-ish. Yeah. And then we started working on a business plan. We talked about it. And um, yeah. And finally, we got our shit together and we opened a brewery in 2016. So you open this brewery, and then and how is how, how have things been since then? Things have been good. Um, okay. Then then really good. It's it, yeah. It's we've come a long way. Uh, we started out with a with a a, a forty two gallon setup. Yeah. So a, a, a Blickman three tier, um, not a big deal kind of kind of thing. You know, with basically a big homebrew setup. Our idea originally was going to be contract wort brewing through Santa Fe Brewing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we were starting our build out, we got a call about a, a seven barrel brew house down in Albuquerque that was sitting there. And so we bought it. We we're like, all right, we're going to change. We're going to throw a little caution in the wind here and buy yeah. the brew house. And that was the best decision we've ever made. Yeah. Because not that Santa Fe bring wouldn't be good wort, but it would just be challenging to coordinate with them because they've grown so much. Sure. In sure. the past few years. This this year they were brewing eleven hundred barrels a week, and four hundred fifty barrels of that was their seven k IPA, mm. and so there was no way they were going to squeeze us in. Right, right. So we would have been kind of left hanging without wort if we had gone down that road. Sure. Um, and really, there's not a lot of contract opportunities in New Mexico. Right. So to, for us to have gotten the seven barrel system was a big, a big win for us. Um, yeah, we paid nineteen thousand dollars for that. So think about that. I mean, that's cheaper than any Chinese piece of shit system that you can get <laughs> anywhere. You know, sure, you can buy a sure. Chinese setup for 50, 50 grand or something, right, right. you know, brewery in a box kind of thing. Um, that's cheaper than that. It's hard to believe, but it is. And it's old school American stainless. All right. So All we, right. we can be proud of that. Yeah, you know, when you do it that way, of course, it uh, you know has different engineering requirements. You yes. uh, you do not necessarily have the support of of someone to help you figure no. out how to put all of this stuff together. No, luckily we're we're um, we're good enough to figure that out on our own. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I have a good good background in mechanical stuff as a chemist. Right. right. My my job during the day is building experiments. So if someone comes to me, they say, "I want to do this." Help me do that. So I set up the experiment. Um, I don't typically run the experiments, although I have in the past. So I'm sort of an engineer 
Right. I'm more of a chemist, but I do a lot of engineering by default. Um, I call it OJT, on-the-job training. <laughs> so I've done that for almost 19 years. So and You work uh, in a fairly auspicious uh, uh, laboratory, do you I, not? I do. I work at Los Alamos National Laboratory, the home of the, uh, the first uranium um, and plutonium bombs that changed World War II. So yeah. that's a very... Uh, auspicious place to work <laughs> they have a they have a very rich history right right let's uh let's switch gears and talk a little more about uh how you think about and how you design and uh how you build processes to make okay. some of these beers uh, but before we do that balancing barley and hops is your expertise and for clarion lubricants food grade lubricants is theirs the team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial one eight five five my clarion That's 855-692-5274. Or visit ClarionLubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. Also, whether you're a full-scale production brewery, a taproom, or a home brewer striving for the ultimate setup, October Can Seamers has the small-scale canning solution. They've proven that breweries increase revenue through to-go sales with October Can Seamers, and everyone loves to sell more beer. You're only a few clicks away from selling more beer. Just head over to octoberdesign.com slash podcast, that's October with a K, and use offer code JAMIE. That's J-A-M-I-E to save $50 on any can seamer purchase. It was so nice of them to make that code name, awesome. name it after me. <laughs> I, uh, I, have one ever, of, I have one of those too. You do? Well, I, didn't, I, didn't, I got one of the very first ones. It okay. Was, it's awesome machine. Uh, you know, I, I actually, uh, we canned a Brewer's Retreat uh, run of beers. And so we've hand canned, I don't know, 400 cans. Uh, nice. It's not in, pleasant. In a, <laughs> no, one by one hand canning was not pleasant. Um, the October Seamer works oh, seamlessly. There's it's, a terrible pun yeah, for you. That's awesome. <laughs> it is. It is a great machine, and uh, yeah, ours yeah. ours has been going now for maybe two two and a half years. Okay. Not you know I had to change the uh, the main bearing once I think, but other than that, it's uh, flawless. Well, that's uh, seamless. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the beers that uh, that you've made that have uh, gained some notoriety on the national uh, stage as a result of winning some medals. Uh, now in 2018, after being open for all, just under two years, you send some beer off to the Great American Beer Festival. You win a medal for your germophile. Uh, germophile, yeah. Berliner Weiss. It's a Berliner, Berliner style Weiss beer. Okay. And then in 2019, you send uh, another you know, stack of beers out to the Great American Beer Festival, and you win three medals for it. Three medals, yeah. That was a, a pretty epic event, I have to say. Yeah. Um, I would recommend that highly <laughs> to anyone who uh, who gets the chance. Put it in your marketing plan, folks. Uh, year three, win three medals and small brew pub of the year at Great American Beer Festival. A lot of that is luck. Luckily, I'm Irish, um, yeah. and that's helped a lot because we have luck. So, you know, winning at a festival like that and winning three medals and, you know, in sour beer categories is, is more than luck that, you know, that speaks to having an approach for what you do. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, and maybe we start talking, you know, with, uh, you know, some of the, the uh, quicker sour processes okay. and some of your kettle sour beers. Now, Germophile is one of those and Meyer uh, uh, is also. Yes, uh, they're both very similar beer. Um, 
they're actually not kettle soured. Okay. Um, but what we do for, for germophile, which is a really simple Berliner style, um, plain sour wheat beer, uh, we do 50% wheat. Um, you can use malted white wheat. Um, we use RAR for that. Um, sometimes we use other ones, um, depending on stock availability. Uh, I've used Wireman in the past. Yeah. Um, I do like the Wireman malt quite I'm a bit. I'm going to crack a can of it here while we, uh, while awesome. we talk. Go for it. The, um, it's, it's not a, it's not a crazy beer. It's, it's 50% wheat, 50% Pilsner malt, and it could be Continental Pils. It could be, you know, it's really, depends on what we can get at the time. Um, we usually use RAR for that cause it's a core beer. We don't, yeah. we don't go too crazy. Um, and what we do for that is we do a live lacto fermentation. Okay. So instead of a kettle sour where you put it in a kettle and boil it, um, after it's been soured, um, I don't do that because there's a, you know, I, we're already dedicated to sour beer. Right. Um, if you're a clean brewery and you're not worried about, and you are worried about um, maintaining a certain level of sanitation, then kettle souring is for you. Um, if you're like us and you really don't care because, you know, we have a process for that already, we're going to do a live lacto-fermentation. We're not going to reboil it after it's been lacto-fermented. Then we're going to pitch some sort of sack into it to finish it off because the lacto is only going to give you sourness. It's not really going to give you alcohol. Yeah. Um, that beer has no hops, so we use the Lactobacillus plantarum. Um, we've used uh, many sources of it. Uh, people have tried Good Belly. That's right. kind of the milk the funk method. Um, I've found that there's a new product from, what is it, Lalamond, I think? Mm-hmm. They have a, a, a Lactobacillus plantarum powder. Okay. A dry, a dry form. Uh, I've started using that because it's more shelf-stable. Okay. Uh, the Good Belly is nice because it's relatively cheap. I think as a as a wholesaler, you can buy three, six. So we were using six, uh, 18 liter pitches of the mango. Of mango Good Belly. The mango Good Belly. Okay. We're using that for a while, um, basically because it was cheap. Um, right. And it was available. Uh, the problem with that. If you got that, a pinch, you could run down to your local uh, Target or Walmart. You can and- do that. That's a pain in the <laughs> ass. Um, but we have a. You know, as a restaurant, we get right, right. Um, we get deliveries every day of food. So um, there's a local seller that sells Good Belly, gotcha. and yeah. we, you know we can get it pretty fresh. Um, we can still do that, but the the the, uh, the the dry powder is roughly the same price. It's probably a little bit more, but it's available, yeah. and I can keep it on. I don't have to refrigerate it. It's a you know you can right. refrigerate it. I mean, do pe- people do refrigerate it? But I mean, it's it's got like a, a crazy two year shelf life or something huh. like that, and they guarantee the purity. It's worked out for fairly well. So you you'd make a I'd starter with that. Imagine that Lalamond's purity is a little different than Good Belly's I, uh, purity. I, I think on it, this. it is. Yes, yeah. I've actually looked at both. Not, not that purity is the thing that anyone should have to strive for in this. Obviously, you know. No, but if there's other things in there that could change the beer profile quite a bit from a professional level. If you're looking for a repeatability, then yeah, uh, that powder uh, is the way to go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, the price is this, roughly the same. So when we say live lacto, you know, do you, do you throw it in the kettle first uh, before you, uh, you know, pitch lacto or so we boil it like we would normal. Yeah. Like we make a, a beer as we would normal mash yeah. louder boil. Then we rack it to our, our fermenter. Yeah. Um, we, we rack in, we go through our, our heat X. 
we go into the the fermenter at a hundred, right, and then we pitch lacto. Okay, and then the lactobacillus plantarum is nice because it'll it'll run from hundred down to seventy ish without any. You don't need to add heat or or it'll still work effectively. Yeah. Now there's other companies like uh, I'll, I'll call out Creature Comforts. They have like a really fast souring lacto. Yeah. Um, that's great. I mean, if yeah. you can do that, um, I if you can find a lacto strain that you can buy, um, or you can bank, I, I I recommend doing that. But if you can't, and you're you're just like a small brewery like us, then the the plantarm is great. Yeah. The only problem with plantarm is it doesn't handle um, IBUs at all. Okay. So we've tried five IBUs and it's kind of neutered it and it'll, it'll, it'll kind of peter out at like a pH of four, 4.2. And this is all happening in a no out, no oxygen environment in the tank or are you? Yep. Yeah. Okay. No oxygen. We pre-acidify to three, no, to, to 4.4. Um, and we don't do any oxygen ex- exclusion. We tried that in the beginning. Um, it's more effort than you need to. Hmm. But if you do a, if you pre-acidify with um, a phosphoric acid or lac- lactic acid, food grade lactic, the phosphoric is cheaper. Yeah, it's a little more harsh. But you, I mean, you're not using much. Yeah. So you don't. I mean, I think it's about 300 milliliters in a seven barrel batch to get you from say five ish to to four point four. Yeah. Uh, nothing's going to grow, and it becomes a hostile environment immediately. So the, the lacto will just shine. It will take off. And so you want the lacto to sour the beer to roughly 3.2 or maybe a little higher. It depends. It changes. It never it never goes exactly to 3.2 every time. Right, right. Some, some, some days it'll, it'll, it'll stop at 3.5. Three some days it'll stop at 3.4. And, you know, part of that could be measurement error. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a pretty good pH meter, but it's still a measurement. Right, right. It's not a. It's not going to be perfect every time. Um, those damn pH meters need constant uh, recalibration. They need so much love. I mean, and the thing is with brewers, is they always buy the cheapest pH meter you can buy. As a chemist, I've been buying a thousand dollar pH meters for years, <laughs> and they still suck. Oh, okay. The, the electrodes need changing yeah, constantly. Yeah. They need to be wet all the time. Uh, it's just a hassle. Yeah. Um, but it's part of the game. So, so you're you are letting this lacto just kind of run its course and get to where it's going to get. We let it let it naturally kind of peter out yeah. to where it hits a pH level where it's just not going to function anymore. Exactly. Eventually, it'll hit a spot where, and it's usually twenty four to forty eight hours. It stops. Okay. And then at that point, we pitch a, a Saccharomyces strain. We we typically use a saison strain. Yeah. Um, uh, French saison yeast for that. Thirty seven eleven. Is okay. the YE's number? Um, uh, if you buy BSG, BSI, it's S11. Uh, we usually get everything from BSI because it's closer, mm-hmm. and their lead times are, are less. So I can get something in a week versus five weeks from for YE's. Okay. So I get it. I well, we, we got to plan it out in advance, but sure. Have a fresh pitch, throw it in, and uh, we let that run out. Um, that's usually like a fourteen day process. Okay. And then it'll it'll uh, it'll finish up real nice. When you say that, like naturally, my my mind is thinking, what temperature are you fermenting that at in order to not, yeah? You know, and how, what are your pitch volumes like so, so we, that you are not, you know, stressing yeast and producing a lot of use, esters? Yeah, we're not using we're using an actual. Um, I think it's uh, I think what they use is is uh, one million cells. 
I think. I can't remember what it is. One million cells per, per milliliter or something like that. Okay. Um, it's a normal pitch rate. We're not trying to stress it out. Um, and then just let that run its course. We don't oxygenate the, the beer when it has lacto in it. Okay. The lacto um, doesn't like that. You can do it. I've tried that before, and it, it doesn't hurt it too badly. But the what I found is the little there's, – there's this, this essence of lacto. And you can kind of get that in, in some beers, but in the kettle sour beers, you can't. A lot of that stuff gets boiled off. It's, it's, it's volatile. It's, it's, it's gentle. It's soft. It doesn't stay. Um, I try to keep that there. Okay. Um, that's a big thing for me, I think, is to that lacto kind of yogurtiness, if you will. Um, there's this essence of lacto that is in these kind of beers that is not in, in kettle sour beers because you boil it off. Are you saying that oxygen also negatively impacts that then too? A little bit, yeah. Okay. Not as much as boiling it. Boiling it definitely does it. But, I mean, if you have restrictions, then you have to boil, that's fine. I'm not trying to say kettle sour beers should die down or anything. There's a place for every process. And so our process doesn't include that. Your process may include that. It depends on what you're doing. We're we're all in on sour beer, so we don't have to worry about that. I mean – you know, realistically, there's not that much difference between what you're doing and no. what someone is. You they're know. very close. They're they're not. Yeah, you they're know. very close. But um, the devil's in the details. Sure, sure. And so I focus on the details. Absolutely, absolutely. I find it interesting that you're pitching, you know, a saison yeast now into that beer, fermenting with it, but without oxygenating. Yeah. Um, you know, what does that cost your fermentations? So that that'll that'll finish out the beer. Um, it'll finish out the beer in a, in actually a fairly clean way. Okay. So you're not stressing the Cezanne yeast. Cezanne yeast is really good because it likes that lower pH range. Yeah. You could try to use Chico. You could try to use other strains that are, but the, the problem with those is they're not pH tolerant. They don't like to be in right. that range, uh, typically. And I think, uh, uh, Mike Tonsmere did a paper on that once. Right. He showed a bunch of different strains and how they tolerated. Even the Cezanne yeast is probably not the best, but it works pretty well in my experience. Um, there probably are others that handle that. Brett will definitely do it really right, well. Right. But in a beer like Germafile, we're not trying to Brett it. Sure. It may get some Brett uh, just because we have a a, um, a less than clean environment with, <laughs> and there's a lot of Brett around. In our wood, it's in our ceiling. Yeah. It's in all of our our space. It can it can get that. Um, it's typically not what we're shooting for with that beer. Okay, um, but traditional Berliner Weiss had bread bread in it. And you're not really like mass packaging that beer, right? No, no, we sell it mostly on draft. Yeah, uh, we are going to do some cans. A of A couple it. of these little cans, canned so, on an October seamer. Right? October seamer, <laughs> right there. Um, we actually call those Rowlers. The Row. Okay. Um, because we don't want to pay Oscar Blues. To use their name, Crowler. Uh, okay. Because okay. it's good for them for making money off intellectual property. But um, that's that's fine. We're, we, we we like this format better. Okay. Because the cans are available. Yeah. And you just drink it at once. I mean, this is a 16-ounce can. It's a 16 I mean, ounce it's can. not even, it's not a Crowler. It's not a Crowler. It's a Rowler. It's a Rowler. <laughs> that's what we call it. Okay. Um, but yeah, when we're, we actually bought a small canning line, and we're going to start canning ah, that. Cool. Um, we're not going to call them Rowlers anymore because... Right. It's actually they're just cans. cans. It's yeah. just it just cans now. Yeah, yeah, which is fine. 
But in this kind of environment, you know, having a little bit of, you know, Brett cross contamination. Uh, for that beer, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. For for an IPA, maybe not as much. Right. Um, although Brett IPA is a thing. It is, yeah. for sure, for sure. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Meyer. Now, uh, this is a, a bit of a, a riff on that kind of live lacto fermentation. It's, it's with a, little a very bit of, similar beer. Uh, and this is a gold medal winner for, from this year at GABF. That's what I'm drinking right now. Nice. Yeah, you're lucky. I don't have a, I don't have a glass of that, but that's okay. Here, I'll go get I've, you a glass. I've, I've had plenty of it. Um, <laughs> you, you drink it up. The the Meyer is very similar beer. It's essentially the same, except for we do a um, instead of acidifying the water. So I, I didn't talk about that earlier, but we 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 pre-acidify our water to five point seven five before we start, and we'll do the whole batch of water for both the mash and uh, and the louder. Um, just because it's easier to do it all at once. Yeah. Some people do just the mash, um, but when I was at Sierra Nevada, they they insisted that just pre-acidify everything and it works better. And I, I can't argue with that kind of experience or or that kind of volume. I mean, those guys know what they're doing. Yeah. So that was a a, a, a kind of a thing that I've I've done since um, on homebrews and on our 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 batches now, and I think that works pretty well. So. Instead of doing that, we, we leave. So we use RO water um, because New Mexico water isn't great. Yeah. Especially Santa Fe. Santa Fe has a weird setup. There's 10 or 12 different wells throughout the town. And so the, the city will just say on any given day, they're going to switch from one well to another. <laughs> and they don't tell you this. <sighs> and so other breweries have, have struggled with this because they'll, they'll use city water and then they'll filter it. But then they'll get this huge bolus of chlorine and chloramines coming through at once. And it happens on a single day that you don't know. And then if your filter is any bit old and hasn't been maintained or, or struggling in any way, it, you, you know, it just comes through. Gets overwhelmed, yeah. And so I, I just didn't want to deal with that. So right. I, I set up a contract with a guy in town that does RO water. Okay. So he delivers me water. It's kind of a pain. Delivers you water. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't have to pay for the maintenance of the RO system. Yeah. He does. He guarantees the, the quality of the water. Okay. We measure the water coming in. It's usually the same every time. So I know he's doing a good job. Um, he delivers water. He's got a big truck full of water. We pump it into our tanks. We have two holding tanks we use. One's our mash or our hot liquor tank. Another's an overflow tank. So if we want to do back-to-back batches... We'll fill them both up. And um, that happens sometimes, not every day. But for a couple batches, we do back-to-back. Um, so we'll, we'll need enough water to do those twice. Yeah. The germophile and the, the goza are not. Those are single batches we do. So usually you can get away with like 300 gallons of water for a seven-barrel batch. So he'll deliver the water. We'll, on our normal beers, pre-acidify them. Um, and then we'll mineralize them to, to style. So if you want to make a, a German Pilsner, you wouldn't add very much minerals at all. If you wanted to make a, a Berliner Weiss, similar. It's a little bit. It's probably like 75 ppm of calcium. Um, and, you know, we don't use the magnesium or anything like that. Just usually calcium chloride on yeah. those beers. Pretty simple. Um, for IPAs, you want to get a little more sulfate forward. So we'll use a mix of chloride and sulfate on the, uh, on the hazy styles. 
the West Coast would be more sulfate heavy. Sure. Um, so we, we can tune the water because we have our right. water. Sure. And it's it's not hard. I mean, yeah. a lot of homebrewers do this. And I, I learned, I had an RO system at home. It's not hard. Is that a water joke? No, I mean, it could be. It could be. Um, yeah. Uh, a, a lot of our beers are on the softer end of the sure. of the hardness scale. Uh, we're not making Burton, Burton style right, right. Uh, ESBs and stuff like that. So, you know, 100, 200 PPM maybe at the most. My brewer, Wes, really likes to lean into that more than I do. Um, I try to tell him, you know, you don't need a lot of minerals. You just right. need enough for the yeast health. And so, sometimes you have beers that are over mineralized. They they taste metallic. They taste chalky in your mouth. And I, I'm trying to lean away from that. Right. Um, I'd rather have a softer feel um, because you're going to get a hard feel from a lot of acid anyway. Yeah. So back off on the minerals. Let the acid kind of shine a little bit. No, um, that makes sense. But on the Meyer, we use 50 pounds of Meyer lemon to acidify the mash. Okay. So instead of acidifying the water. It's a weird process. It is a weird process. You throw cut up lemons into your mash in order to acidify? We cut half. We cut uh, 50 pounds of lemons in half. And then we toss them in the mash at the same time the the grains go in. Well, the grains go in first and then the the lemons go in. 60-minute mash. From a production standpoint, that sounds like a giant pain in the ass. It is a giant giant pain (laughs) in the ass. But that's brewed the hard way. Yeah, we have a kitchen, so yeah. we tell those guys, "Hey, come over here, cut cut this shit." It's awesome. A lot of like farmhouse breweries don't have kitchen support. I yeah, I can we have see kitchen that. support. So yeah, the fruiting stuff is actually pretty nice. Like, okay, I can tell the cooks, "Hey, I need you guys to pit all these cherries." You know, whatever you know, two hundred pounds of cherries get to work, and they'll do it. They they don't say they Man. don't. It doesn't bother them. Wow. They like they like relish in it. They're like, oh, really? We're helping you make beer. I'm like, yeah, you're helping me make beer. So, what um, you know, from a, a sensory standpoint, from a brewing standpoint, uh, what do you get that is different from acidifying, pre-acidifying with, or you know, acidifying your mash using lemons in the mash versus just using lactic acid, you know, to accomplish so, the same. So yeah, kind of lactic thing. acid is pretty monodimensional. Um, you're not going to get, a, you're going to get tartness and you're not going to get anything else. But when you mash the lemons, you get all of these rind flavors. Um, you get a lot of different fruit character that you might not get normally. And it works really well. I did a lot as a homebrewer. Um, it's a lot easier on a homebrew scale. Yeah, I can see that. If you're doing a 20 gallon batch of, of a grapefruit beer, you can, you know, what's that? 10, 15 grapefruits cut in half. It's not right. that, not that bad. Um, when you're talking 50 pounds, you know, 100 pounds, that that's a lot. Then it helps to have a kitchen staff. It helps to have a kitchen staff. <laughs> but um, regardless, it's it's a it's a pain in the in the ass no matter what. Yeah. Um, but it, it it definitely changes. It's a it's a unique beer. I mean, it's not going to give you like an over the top lemon character, but it's going to give you these secondary lemon notes that are kind of consistent with a Goza or a Berliner Weiss. I mean, if you read the guidelines in GABF or BJSP even, they'll say, you know, a, a slight lemon character is desirable in these styles. So when we came up with this beer originally, we were like, oh, well, this is perfect. That's what you want, right? It's interesting, you know, because, you know, lactic acid naturally imparts a little bit of lemon lemon character. And it just has that, you know, that character which gets perceived that way. 
Yeah, but you're right. I think there are some like earthier lemon tones to this. It changes it. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a little more uh, it's complex. Diff- it's like, more tertiary than than it would be if it was just a the lactic acid by itself. Right, and it's also um, a bit. I guess there's more of a smoothness to the lemon character to it. It is. Where, it is more smooth. Yeah, um, lemon can often come across as very sharp and. Uh, uh, and have a really distinct edge to yeah, it. It's, and this it's one, sharp. the edge is there, but it just kind of starts, it rolls in a little it's bit It's a little more. smoother. Citric acid is a sharp acid in my in my experience. Like if you're using it for any kind of brewing process, it, it lends to a sharpness. Yeah. And I think that's common with lemons, limes, uh, grapefruits, any of the citrus fruits. Maybe not orange as much, but that's a little sweeter. So 14 days is what you say for fermentation through this process? Yeah. So we, we sour it for the and same. you keep it at a you know, normal. Yeah. So uh, we start at 100 um, through the heat X into the fermenter, pitch the, the lacto. That'll go for 24 or 48 hours and then pitch Cezanne yeast and then let it ride. Um, we usually try to keep it below 77 with the French yeast. Uh, the, the cap for that yeast is around 77 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's not as... It's not going to be crazy phenolic, like um, especially if you use the right pitching rates. If you use the, if you underpitch it, stress it, you'll get phenols. We're trying to stay away from that, right? And just it's we use that yeast more for not for the saison character, but for the acid tolerance, and it does a good job. I mean, you know, in drinking it, I I would not have guessed you can't that, guess, was, yeah. that was that was a saison yeast. Yeah, that, no, nobody, everyone thinks, oh, we use Chico. I'm like, no, yeah. no Chico's thirty seven eleven. Oh, I, I thought you used quake yeast. <laughs> no, I, I, we, we've tried a little bit of that, yeah. not with that beer, but um, that is highly pitching rate dependent. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've tried to do some repitching with that, and we've made some pretty awful beer. Okay. So I, I'm not a huge uh, proponent of that yeast yet. Okay. I need time to figure that out. Yeah. There's a lot of variables with that yeast. It's popular. It seems to be a pretty hot thing right now. It's a hot thing, but I'm not on board. Well, there's yet. another fun, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it likes to ferment hot. Um, that that there's an advantage in that. If you can not have to deal with temperature control and right, have right. 95 degree fermentation, sure. Let's talk uh, a little bit now about some of your, uh, you know, I would, I guess, if we call them traditional, yeah, style sour beers. More sour, yeah. That, that's the stuff I really like to brew. Um, and these are, are uh, you know, longer mixed fermentations with, uh, you know, multiple souring bacteria, generally aged in wood. Um, yes. Talk to me a little bit about your process around that from uh, recipe design, you know, through, uh, you know, through the culture that you've built and how you've built it. And then we'll okay. kind of move on from there. So the uh, I started out um, brewing those styles. It was around 2012, I think. I started trying to do. A little bit with the uh, mixed culture. I, I tried the, the like the commercial stuff, the Rosalair. I found that that stuff is good, but it takes a long time. Uh, then in 2013, I went to Jester King to visit them for the first time. And my mind was blown by their culture. It was just fantastic. Um, yeah, I was lucky to uh, to visit them for the, uh, the Atria Rubicite, the first release. Wow. And... That that beer blew my mind. It yeah. was so good. I had I had dreams of it. The next day, the, the day after, <laughs> and, and luckily they Jeff was so cool. He gave me the case of it to go home with. And um, wow. yeah, and I, I it didn't last very long. Okay, but that beer kind of changed my uh, my mindset about these kind of mixed culture beers 
instead of trying to use what the labs were, were giving us, I was going to say, let's try some of this local, more local stuff. So I tried actually to make a couple of homebrew batches with his yeast, um, prop it up, grow it up. Yeah. Um, however, that didn't work really well for me. Um, I got a lot of diacetyl. It, it just, it, that culture wasn't, wasn't quite working for me. So I started from scratch. Or whatever the culture was whatever, after it had gone through it its gone, bottle process and now yeah, you're trying to grow. Exactly. Back up, sure. I, I probably fucked it up somewhere along the line. But I so, wasn't going to say that, but that, hey, you, you, know. you can say that. <laughs> you know, we're all humans and we make mistakes. He didn't fuck it up. <laughs> he didn't fuck it up. I fucked it up. But that's fine. Um, so I tried to do um, my own thing where I would say, okay, what about. Let's let's try to combine everything that I like about commercial strains and wild strains. Yeah. So I took, you know, all the French Belgian Cezanne yeasts, put them in a mix. I took some some lab Brett, I took some lab lacto, um, some Delbruki and some Bruxellensis, some Lambicus. Uh, I made a pretty equal mix and then I brewed a couple beers with that. And those are those are okay. And then so I started adding things like um, I took some flowers from down the street. There was a lavender plant I found, and I cut a bunch of those up. I threw them in some wort, brewed a batch of beer with that, threw that culture in, and um, you know, kind of just modified it in a more local sense over time. And after about twenty batches of beer, these are all like pretty low IBU. Um, Cezanne type of beers, um, real simple, um, maybe 12 IBUs, Mount Hood hops probably, um, nothing crazy. And, you know, wheat, Munich, oats, and some Pilsner malt probably, five-gallon batches, and I would make, you know, 20 bottles at a time and just drink through those, drink through those, and try to get – a, a feel for what that gave me and did that over and over and over. And eventually I got to a great spot where I thought this culture is really good. And so then I sent that culture to, to BSI and I had them bank it. This said, is when you were a home brewer. I was a home brewer. And, and wow. I told him I'm opening a brewery, which is true. Yeah. Not exactly at that moment, <laughs> but okay. I, I opened an account. I said, this is, this is my, my mixed culture. I want to save this. Yeah. And so then I, 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 I kind of come back to that occasionally. I still like to do as much um, development on that and let it go as long as possible. But, you know, these things don't always behave like you want. Right. Sometimes the Brett starts becoming phenolic. Um, sometimes you get flavors that aren't ideal in, in other ways. I, I, at that point, I'll just kind of reboot and start over. And, you know, I, I know I, at least I have a spot to come back to every time. Right. And that has worked out pretty well for us. Um, I haven't really played much with that since we've opened, um, other than just reusing that. Yeah. That's something I want to play some more with. Um, once we do our, get more into our spontaneous beers, uh, which is kind of a newer thing for us. We've, we've done a couple of those over the last two years. I did one in um, in our backyard. Uh, this guy from Twelve West Brewing, Noel. Uh, I don't know if you know him. He has a mobile cool ship. He brought okay. it to, brought it to my place in February of 2018, and we made a beer with it. 
And I actually have it here today if you want to try it. Hey, let's open some up. It's that one there. Okay. Uh, we, it was our third anniversary beer. That's the first uh, release of it. We called it Songs of Our Own. Yeah, so we, we, we produced so far two batches of mixed ferment, or the, uh, sorry, the spontaneous ferment, fermentation beer. This is the first one. This was uh, aged on tangerines. Yeah. This is just a single barrel, so we have actually a lot more of it to work with. Okay. Cheers. Oh, cheers. We wanted to have a beer, pardon me, ready for our third anniversary, which was last September. And this is the beer I chose. So this one is actually pretty, it's a little more Brett than sour. It kind of leads a little more into the funkiness. There's also a lot of fruit character so that might kind of hide a little bit of the, the base beer. But I mean, I, I get a general sense as I, I drink your sour beer. And one of the things that I find so appealing about it is that it has a very mild acidity to it. There is acidity there. Obviously, I'm looking at the label. and This one's and, especially soft. Yeah, this one has a pH of 3.3, and yet that acidity is not assaulting. It's not a, a, a No, but if you read the pronounced so I, I do the acidity. TA measurements also, which is not something everyone does. Sure, sure. And this one's 13.6 grams per liter. That's actually pretty low, I think. Um, so we've had some people bring us beer. Yeah. A homebrewer is to... to to do that test for them because it's, it's a titration. It's pretty easy right. to do, but not everyone has a burette at home. Not everyone has um, 0.1 molar right, right. sodium hydroxide. Um, you, you know, you have to have a little bit of stuff to do that yeah. measurement. And so we've had beer up to 30 grams per liter really? from homebrewers. And okay. our, our highest we've ever had was in the low twenties and that was pretty sour. Um, I don't know what the, commercial scales go to because I'm only working off my own data. You know, I'm trying to uh, remember back because uh, Jeffers Richardson of he does uh, it, yeah. Firestone Walker, well, when he was at Firestone Walker, he's no longer there, um, but had a great presentation on, uh, you know, Jeffers' acid trip, uh, which <laughs> nice. was, it was a really wonderful way to think about what differing levels of, of uh, total acidity or titratable acidity in beer you know, produce for the way that those things express in flavor and how pe you know people, in a sensory perspective, uh, you know, can react to those, uh, and it changed the way that I taste sour beer. Obviously, uh, one of the core components of that whole thing that he did, and I, I must, I have to do some more on it down the road because it's a it's a thought experiment and a sensory experiment that everyone should do. Um, you know, you uh, tasting uh, lower concentrations, differing uh, uh, TA levels of lactic in water. So, okay. so that, you know, you get a sense for what these varying acidity levels are. Yeah, that'd be are. easy to do. Very easy. You know, you just understand what your dilution rates are and kind of, you know. Yeah, that's, you, that's not rocket set science. Set up different le levels and then also do the same kind of thing with acetic acid to understand. Okay. You know, that's easy enough. It's that's just white too. vinegar, right? Um, you know, yeah, at Costco, you can get a gallon of it for two bucks, three bucks. Uh, you know, you can go to a store and, and buy it cheap too, uh, and it doesn't take much. It doesn't even take a, you no. know what you might buy, for, you know, in a, in, a, in a store for that. And so, you know, by doing that, you also get an understanding of, you know, even the way that those acids uh, sit on your palate in different ways. You know, that yeah, they're, uh, they're totally different. They are completely different in the way the lactic hits your tongue, and that acetic acid kind of sits in the back of your throat. Yeah, the sensory. You know, it's, it's a physical experience yeah, of those absolutely. acids to help you kind of differentiate, you know, the difference between those kinds of things. 
Um, you know, but I remember, you know, we would do samples in about the like five uh, grams per liter level. Uh, and I know that like their Berliner Weisses were in that kind of five to seven range. And okay. then pretty soft. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you moved up to that kind of 10 to 12 range for, you know, that next tier of sour, but not overwhelmingly sour right. beers. And then, uh, you know, in that kind of 18, 17, 18 range, yeah, it starts to get aggressive, started to get serious. Right. Right. Um, and beyond that, no one should be making beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's the thing. There are, you know, experiences in the yeah. past, like yeah. the Kiwi, uh, Upland, what was right, that? That right. beer was really aggressive. It's actually a really interesting topic. I really like to talk about both of them, pH and TA. Um, because I think it gives you a more broad picture of the acidity, right, right. acid profile of the beer. Um, some beers are, are, you know, if you talk about pH only, it's just not enough. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's a broad picture here, not just one thing. Right, right. So, you know, for sour beer, it takes a while to kind of assimilate all that data and figure out where you want to be. We, we want to be on the softer side sure. of, of the coin, um, just in general, because you can drink drink the beer more pleasurably right um beer that's too acidic is uh is generally going to it's it, it will you know some people won't even drink it their right. esophagus hurts and sure you know sure. painful so what levers do you pull to to keep this acid under control is it just a function of the culture or are you using hops and ibu to not to really move that yeah, there, I, I, I know where you're going with that I, we're, our ibus are pretty low we're in the 12 to 15 range okay. typically uh, we use Mount Hood um, a lot, uh, Steering Goldings. So that's is, really low compared to some other, you know, folks whose cultures can, you know, take 30 IBU, you know, uh, or really takes yeah. much, much higher IBUs to so kind of control some of I've, these bigger cultures. I've tried cultures. a few experiments like that where we yeah. make a like a 30 to 40 IBU beer. Um, and with my culture, I get like almost no acid at all. Yeah. So it's it's not... Um, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe because I use the Del Bruki in my original experiments and that hasn't, I haven't tried things like plantarum in these beers. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm kind of happy with where it is. So it's, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of thing. Sure. So I'm not going to really entertain adding more lacto to the culture at this point. And, you know, even if you did, it would be kind of stupid because, I mean, the plantarum, especially, you're not going to get any benefits if you're sitting at 12 or 15 IBUs anyway. Um, those That culture like, or that specific strain likes very low IBUs or right, none right. to make a sour beer. And we, we already know that from our Goza or Berliner. So it's almost pointless to, to change it. Um, yeah, I'm not trying to make acid. Right, right. I'm trying to make beer. So, you know, that's a component of it, of course. And I, I'm... I can't really say I want more acid than where we're at right now. There are companies that make beer that are more acidic, and that's fine. There are people that want beer that's more acidic. Um, I I haven't really met anyone in my kind of group, uh, people that talk to me that have, have had my beers, that have said, oh, your beer is too acidic. Because um, that's one thing I focus on is not trying to be. I've made a couple that I think are more acidic. Um, but at the same time, it's, if it's too acidic, I probably won't release it. Okay. I'll just, I'll say, no, this is not, not going to be usable or we'll, we'll blend, blend it, it or down. Yeah. blend it down. I mean, I haven't really had 
a lot of that yet. So, you know, you never know. You yeah. Know. Um, that's one thing you can do. You can tune acidity via IBU. We haven't had to do that, but it's it's an option. Yeah. Um, you know, as long as I, I can rely on my culture to, to not go crazy, I think I'm okay. What did you learn through this uh, spontaneous beer process? Since we're drinking this now with tangerines in it, you know, one of the – yeah, one of the challenges, especially where you are in a very high desert, dry environment, uh, you know, is is having enough living airborne culture to produce anything right. in a kind of spontaneous beer. Uh, you know, I've I've talked to brewers before, like I'm not going to try spontaneous beer up here. Like what what's around that we're even what's gonna around? Be able to, what are you going to get? Yeah. yeah, you know, it can work in some more humid environments where things tend to live longer and hang around. Um, you know, now and or, you know, if you take the kind of Belgian approach where they'll spray down their spray new the house building with, uh, you know, with the uh, old beer in order to kind of carry some of the continuity of culture around. And, uh, you know, you're you're helping nature along and uh, giving you Absolutely. what you want and what your customers are going to want. I, a lot yeah. of brewers are doing that. Um, so I actually bought a cool ship. It's being manufactured right now. Uh, a copper seven barrel cool ship. Um, we're going to put it on a trailer. And so our approach is going to be different. We're going to be, we're going to go to places where we think there will be more indigenous microflora. Okay. And we're going to try to get different flavors from different places. Sure. Um, and I know this. I'm not the first person who's done no, this. No, you're not. <laughs> There's ma- many many people have, d- have done this. <clears throat> right. And right. Part of it for, for me, if you're Jester King and uh, you're uh, American Solera, you might just drive a cool ship back and forth between the two of you. Well, and, uh, and that's great. I mean, yeah. if you could pull it off, the the thing is space. Like right. if you have, you know, Jester King, you go upstairs, they have space for a 30 barrel cool ship. That's awesome. It's a awesome space. I mean, I don't have a space for that. Yeah. If I had space, I would, I would probably want to do that because it's, yeah. it's more repeatable. Um, but I'm looking at it more as a, as a kind of a, let's go check out some new places kind of experiment um, and see where we can find different indigenous microflora. And see how that affects the beer. Well, the Arizona Wilderness guys do that, right? They, they do that, yeah. Once a year, they drive up to the, the National Forest. Yeah, they've uh, done North, that quite yeah, a bit. Yeah. And I, 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 I haven't had that beer, so I don't know what it is. Nor have I. But I think that there is some value in that. Yeah. Um, you know, if not, everyone's there having a good time, get to camp out and enjoy the weekend or whatever. So it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, if the beer comes out shitty, then it's a bad thing. But... Um, yeah, so I've got this cool ship coming, so I will be able to do these yeah. beers um, throughout next winter and, and beyond, or this winter. It's winter now, <laughs> but I, 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 you know, I think that that for me that's going to be a fun right way to to try to gather because I know New Mexico can make some good sour beer in terms of indigenous Mike Flora. Well, John Rowley, what's next for Rowley Farmhouse Sales? Well, I, I wouldn't say we have anything like crazy planned. We're just going to keep doing what we're, we're doing, and and we're going to enjoy the ride. Well, congratulations on uh, three medals at GABF. Thank you. That was running a the table with uh, hell of a day. bronze, <laughs> silver, and gold, and uh, getting to go stand up on the stage three times this yeah, past that, that year. Was, that was a lot of fun. Actually, I guess it would be four times because you had three medals Plus small brew pub of the year. Yeah. Well, they think they, they gave us the uh, the one at the same time. We actually went up four times 
to pick up our friend Nate from Free Will Brewing's uh, okay. metal. Okay. So we, I, I, I did go up there a lot. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. The beers are delicious. The state of New Mexico is a gorgeous place that everyone should go visit. Uh, Santa Fe is a wonderful town, uh, and I enjoy every time I get to go visit. I, uh, I'm Santa blessed Fe. to call Santa Fe my home. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a beautiful place. Um, and if it hasn't been on people's uh, uh, visit list yet, then uh, it should be on everyone's. I hope they list. come and visit because uh, we we've got good stuff going on. The food's fantastic, and um, you know we have Meow Wolf and all the tourist stuff and skiing and yeah, it's it's a great spot. Great mountain biking, all of that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, mountain biking is fantastic. Uh, before we get out of here, for 25 years, GD Chillers has led the way with innovative solutions. Stay connected to the heart of craft beer with a Tavor app. October Can Seamers is the small scale canning solution. And Clarion Lubricants is the expert at food grade lubricants. If you enjoy the podcast, I hope you go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and become a subscriber and supporter of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine and this podcast. Uh, we get to provide it for you free every week, 52 weeks a year. Um, you know, year round and, uh, you know, your support of the magazine is one of the things that helps us do this support of our uh, advertisers and sponsors is the other thing that helps us do it. And the support of brewers that are willing to sit here and talk to us about all of their secrets and, and uh, uh, the way they do it, techniques and et cetera, uh, is also absolutely what makes this podcast possible. To that end, uh, John, thanks for talking to me about how you make beer. Absolutely, Jamie. I'll come back anytime. Thank uh, you. If, if people want to find uh, Rally Farmhouse Sales, where do they find you? So we do mostly uh, Facebooking, um, okay. just because that's kind of the, the most yeah. popular app in our area. Um, so Rowley Farmhouse on, uh, I think it's Rowley Farmhouse Ales. We also have a Twitter page, which I don't really do, but my uh, my partners uh, do that. Um, yeah. I think that's Rowley Farmhouse Ales. And then Rowley Farmhouse on Instagram, I do that. And there's also the Rowley Funhouse. The Rowley Funhouse. Which is more of uh, the, uh, that's Wes, our brewer. That's his shenanigans. Okay. So if you want to see stupid shit. That's not the latest Meow Wolf installation? No. There's probably... Because <laughs> uh, I want to see that. The fun house <laughs> is fun, I have to admit. I don't. I have nothing to do with that. That's more for his thing. Gotcha. But it's all good. Well, John Rowley, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate you having me up. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.